Friends, as you know, here at Wildsons, we long for men to get their whole heart back. We are a community of men on a journey to awaken our masculine hearts, to receive the healing and restoration that Jesus has for each of us, and to be initiated as God's true sons and warriors and brothers to become who God created us to be, his kings, lower K kings, who can rule here on earth now in union with him under his kingdom, under his rule, and bring our strength in love on behalf of those who God has entrusted to our care. For me, this journey began almost two decades ago through the wisdom and guidance of incredible mentors and friends who God has brought over time into my life. And one of the most influential of these mentors is Morgan Snyder. Morgan has played a crucial role in the Wallet Heart team since before John Eldridge wrote Wallet Heart about 20 years ago. And more importantly, he's a man who has been willing to consent to this path and process to become, over time, who God created him to be. As a result of this journey, Morgan has been leading events and leading and discipling thousands of men around the world. And two years ago, he published the book Becoming a King, The Path to Restoring the Heart of a Man. This book contains the heart of what he has been leading many men through, including myself, and a lot of what has influenced who we are and what we do here at Wild Sons. Not too long after Morgan published Becoming a King, I had the pleasure of sitting down and having a deep conversation with him about some of the key themes of the book. We captured this conversation on video and then we published it on our website on the blog section at wildsons.com. But now it's been exactly two years after the publication of Becoming a King and the stories of transformation that have come from the Wildsons community alone have been incredible as we have gone together and uh, we have mined this book for all its treasures. And so as a way of celebrating this milestone for Morgan and, and for the book Becoming a King, we want to offer the treasure of this conversation I had with him to our growing community here on the Wildsons podcast. We think you're really going to like it. And after listening to this conversation, you're going to want to dive into the contents of the book. We really hope you enjoy it. We're here with Morgan Snyder, uh, author of Becoming a King. Morgan, you've, you've been a champion of my heart for many years. And uh, I hear you constantly quote Jeremiah 6.16, which you start your book with, and it says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Um, you have been showing me the path, the narrow road. You've been showing me the ancient path for many years now, and so I'm so grateful to have this conversation with you. It's an honor. It's a true honor. And it is an honor that we get to share this conversation with the Wild Sons community. Um, and my hope is that they can get as many treasures as I have gotten from our conversations and our time, our miles over the last few years. Um, to get started, I would love if you can share with us your journey. Where are you? Uh, who are you? And how did you come to the place where you are, writing this book, writing this message? A little bit of context from you would be super helpful. Yeah, first of all, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Um, it is a mutual honor mm -hmm. because we have bled together and celebrated together and covered a lot of miles of growing up together. It's very holy. 
you know, as, as you share that and read from Jeremiah 6, 16, what I'm struck by um, is I feel like a, a big part of my calling that's taken me decades to understand is that um, in, I, there's some kind of stewardship of curating and distilling ancient truths. That it's, the gospel is nothing new, but it's being newly recovered. Yes. You know, G.K. Chesterton is a brilliant elder of ours, uh, 17th century Scotland, and he said that every generation loses the path of life, and every generation is charged with its recovery. Yes. And so my hope was to have nothing new in that book or anything I ever teach. I want it to be a treasure newly recovered, and it didn't start with knowing where that path was um, or even knowing there was a path. It started with some combination, I would say, of deep desire. I'm a passionate man, yes, an Lord. intense man, yeah. and a lot of pain mm. of um, flying my plane into the side of a cliff, metaphorically, in many ways, I don't fly a plane, but my life as a plane, yes. a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow of hurting people I love, a lot of chasing success, and either succeeding and finding it empty or failing and coming to some really harmful conclusions about myself. And so I think to really frame where did this start, it's an interesting question because where do you begin? I think what I would say is I was raised by loving, well-intended parents, hearts filled with love but unhealed and uninitiated themselves. My dad grew up in uh, very deep poverty. It's a story we share very similarly with our dads. And when he was eight years old, he was an only child. The family went bankrupt and they came to him and asked for his piggy bank, his glass jar. He used to keep his spare change in a brewing jar. And they literally broke the bank to save the family. And so my dad at eight years old broke the bank and bought three bus tickets for mom and dad himself to leave uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Jewish Squirrel Hill District of P Pittsburgh to go the only living relative that they were in relationship with in Miami, Florida. And that's where they went. And my dad saved the family through his change jar. And the message was, I am loved when I provide financially. I know he couldn't have articulated yes. it at the time, but those messages get lodged in our soul. We all are looking for life yes. and we don't know exactly where to find it. And when we do, simply for moments, we don't know how to make it last. And all of us image bearers, us humans share that in common. We want life and we want it to last forever. And if we just pause and think about that, Pablo, we can begin to see that everything we do, every action we take is a reach for life, to find it and try to make it last forever. I was just biking with a friend early this morning and he was telling me about a really difficult situation with his uh, in-law who passed away and them dealing with the funeral and they're trying to battle with all of the demands that she made before she died, 
with how the funeral should go. And then the mixed family trying to war for what their demands were. And everyone's carrying grief and sorrow. And out of that grief and sorrow of pain, it's coming out as anger and control. And it was a messy situation. Even after the death, still a reach to control my legacy, my name, right? And so, so much of life is a reaching. And so that's where my dad found that sentence. So fast forward, dreamed of being a marine biologist. He fell in love with the ocean because he's a poor kid on the ocean, always with a side job of, you know, a little hustle of selling sand dollars to tourists or being a pool boy. And he would take the empty sun lotion bottles from the expensive ones, you know, um, and then they'd fill them up with generics and resell them to the tourists. <laughs> and always find a way to make a buck as a yeah. poor kid. But he loved the ocean, but marine biologists don't make a lot of money. Yeah. Well, he needs money to find love. Mm. And so then the path got presented to f- potentially be a doctor and to take that love for biology, but make money. And so mm. fast forward um, seven decades. Wow. Seven decades yes. of living out some sentence of I'm loved when I provide financially. So those messages get in our soul. And for my soul, um, I was a eager young man that wanted life and always found myself looking for life and rallying people, whether it was cowboys and Indians or hunting werewolves as eight and nine-year-olds or leading night games. And as I grew up more, I was going into student government and being present in my class every year, always looking for life. And women and leadership were the drugs. They were the medicators. They were intoxicating because they were the places that made me feel like a man. Though I couldn't have told you at the time. And uh, I went through a radical conversion that began the night I left for college. I'd won the world and I'd lost my soul. I I had won the game. I had won the school game, a 4.0, the pretty girlfriend, the leadership. And I looked in the mirror. My mom actually said to me, you know, you have two little brothers and you've never really spent much time with them. I hope you don't um, live to regret that. And I looked in the mirror, Pablo, and I remember looking into what I experienced as a soulless man, a young man without a soul. I remember thinking, if I die tonight, I don't know God. But I know he exists, and I know he knows me, and I have nothing to say for myself. I've tricked everyone. I've, tr- I've fooled everyone but me and God. And I went to bed wondering if I was going to die that night, and I didn't. I'd won the world and lost my soul. And so I got in my car, and I drove to university, and I said, I'm going to find God. I'm going to find God. And what I didn't understand until years later is I wasn't the one pursuing. I was the one being pursued. I was responding to an invitation that something beckoning me that I couldn't have named or even noticed. I wasn't the architect or the author. I was the one responding. And so it began a process of giving my life over to God. And in college, it was a radical reorientation of my worldview of where I go to, for life. I literally had to extract myself from America and go to England for a semester to just detox, disentangle this severe addiction to leadership and to women and find who I was, begin that process. And so I, in that, I began walking with God. But what I found, I think what's important as we start here is I loved God. I trusted him as much as I could 
But I was a boy in a man's body and in a growing man's world. I couldn't have named it, but what I really felt below the passion was fear. And what I really felt below the faith was a fear of um, just fear of exposure and a sense of failure and not enough and lack of self-worth. I was an uninitiated boy needing a father. And so the story of the next 25 years of my life was really a story of being fathered as a son and initiated as a man into what we would name wholeheartedness of what God meant when he meant masculinity, not as a caricature, but to recover design. And then what he meant when he meant me as Morgan and you as Pablo, that unique expression, that piece of God's heart and nature um, and his intention on the earth to bring that no one else can bring. Mm And so that was the beginnings and there's much more, but it was really a response to the father um, who I didn't know. And I learned um, wrong to relearn him as he truly is and to break every limit that I had placed on who he can be and what he can do and how he can do it. That sounds amazing, Morg. Let me go back to the beginning. What I'm, part of what I'm hearing you say is you were chasing leadership and women, that, that constant pursuit uh, of that. And my reaction to that is clearly the category of maybe pursuing a bunch of women sounds wrong, but leadership in itself doesn't sound wrong to me as something that as a young man or as a grown up man, I may want to pursue it when I found you and when I encountered this message years ago, part of what I was trying to do internally without knowing Mm -hmm. was trying to make life work, um, trying to get a raise, trying to get, uh, build a better company, a bigger company, and those are things that in, in, of, the, of themselves are not wrong. Right. Uh, can you elaborate on that? It, and, and as I've read your material and as we have con, uh, come in contact, you've described that as the, the desire to rule, to have power. There is nothing wrong with that desire, mm-hmm. but you're characterizing that as, as something that led you down the wrong path. Yes. Can you... Yeah, there's some really important layers to your question. And I think where I'd, I'd start in a response to that, you know, there, uh, there's this great quote from Tony Pierce that we'd often uh, use where he says, there's a lot of people that want to be matadors until they find themselves in the ring with 3,000 pounds of bull staring at them. Yes. And then what they realize only then is what they really wanted was to wear tight pants and hear the roar of the crowd. Yes. Right? Yeah. We all it's want to be a matador, right? Yeah. right? We all want to play pro football. We all want to be Michael Phelps right? yes. and get all these gold medals. But do we know what that takes to become that kind of person, hmm. right? And so motives um, are so important. We're, we're really getting into some deep waters pretty quick here. Yeah but I would name it as a civil war in the soul. What I believe is every one of us has, what I would name is two selves within us, right? Uh, St. Paul, one of the brilliant theologians and fathers of our faith has articulated this, where he said he's very mature. This is 14 years into deep apprenticeship in his role as a king in God's kingdom. 
He's become very much a student of his inner life, which is very courageous as mm-hmm. a man. We fear what's inside because often it's God and us in trouble. But a life without heart is not a life worth living. So we have to look inside. And he looks inside and he goes, what I want to do, what I genuinely desire to do, I don't find myself doing. And what I don't want to do, I find myself doing with regularity. What do I do with the civil war within me? And so Pablo, I think it's important to name that there is a civil war within each of us. There is a man who's given over to false self. That is to say that the most important thing we can know about any human being is that we bear the image of God as a man and as a woman. It's the most important thing we can know about any human being is young or old, healed or broken, any race, any socioeconomic picture, any story, we all bear the image of God. And we bear the image of God particularly as a man or a woman. It's in there, in every human being. And when we begin to relate to other people in ourselves as image bearers of the living God, yes, broken, yes, perverted, yes, tormented, but the deepest thing is the image of God. That's where we begin to recover life, begin to restore what's been lost. And so to your question about leadership, like I would describe myself as a very intense person. It's something else we share in common. I am profoundly intense. I throw myself into everything I do. And for years I resented that. And I actually tried to repent from it. That is, as I say, I tried to give it up let it die um, so that I could be reborn. The problem is my intensity is part of how I bear the image of God. Mm -hmm. And you can't walk away from the image of God in you. We can try. The intensity was leading me to exhaustion because it was in the service of my false self. It was in the service of my life without God. And so I use that God-given intensity to try to get some question answered deep in my soul, some question that was unnamed, but something like, am I a real man? Do I have what it takes? Um, Am I good and true? Am I powerful? Do I have something to bring? And I didn't have that question answered. And so I would use my intensity, for example, to come through for people. My dad has the sentence, I am loved when I provide financially. I think if I had to excavate, and I've spent 25 years excavating my story, and I think if I had to name the central narrative that's carried me through every season, it's I am loved when I come through. Hmm. I am loved when I come through for many and much. And that's where one of my biggest fears is that false man in me that part of me, not the truest me, but he is in me, that what I would put on his grave marker would be, he came through for many and much proudly and anxiously at the expense of who and what mattered most. Mm -hmm. That's intensity, the image of God in me, in the service of the false. But my intensity in the service of love is entirely different. 
My intensity is what allowed me to persevere under mentors for over a decade to craft the message of becoming a king. My intensity is what allowed me to steward what was entrusted to me by 75 ancient men that had recovered the ancient path to begin to gather like-hearted men in these foothills in the Colorado Rockies and begin to dive into their counsel and dive into our stories and wrestle with this. My intensity allows me to persevere. And when it's in the service of love, it's under care, it's under constraint. It's free to serve as an offering of strength rather than a looking for a question to be answered. And so leadership in and of itself is not a bad thing. But the same energy that a man can steward a kingdom in love and strength and dignity is the same energy that a man can use a kingdom to promote himself, to fuel self-interest, to bring harm to those entrusted to his care. It's leadership. The question is who and what is it in the service of? And I'm curious for you, just as you hear that, like, where, where do you go with that? Yeah, as you were describing that, that reminded me of um, when I was in my early 30s to mid-30s to late-30s even, and that deep desire to find my calling and vocationally succeed, whatever that looked like. And in my world, it, it meant working in a tech company or building a startup or things of that nature and have success at least as is defined in the eyes of the world. And my pursuit of those things, I felt in my heart, is actually given by God. I have these desires and I want to build these things and there is nothing wrong with them. It, it, it felt to me, this is the will of God for me and therefore I'm, I just have to go and pursue it. What I'm hearing you say is maybe yes, so but before that, let's examine your internal life mm -hmm. and consider whether, whether the reason you're actually doing it is because God is calling you to do it right now or instead, is he inviting you to a journey so that you can become the kind of person who can actually build that kingdom and rule yes. and in the process. And so now, in hindsight, it's easy for me, easier for me to see it. But back in the day, in the pursuit of those things that I thought were good and God-given, I actually ended up harming very deeply my wife and my young kids when they were when they were just little, um, because I chose those things because there was a pull towards those things that I considered good. None of that is a sin. I'm not chasing after women out there. I'm just trying to build my career and provide for my family. Um, but now examining that in the lens through the lens that you're describing makes me realize how much of that was not for those motives. It was more because I needed the, the answer to the questions that my heart had yes. about, am I the real deal? Can I come through for people? Am I a, the real, am I a real man? Do I have what it mm -hmm. takes? And in the absence of having that question answered, I took that question to the places where I thought I could get the answer, work yes. among, all the, among, among them. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant illustration, Pablo, because the mandate and the invitation of the heart of the Father to us is a double-edged sword. It's the very first assignment and invitation given to humanity where God creates all of this. He's the author of all things, the animals, 
the land, the sky, the earth, wood, fire, stone. He created it all and gives it to us like a wedding gift. He, he gives us the keys and he says, go for it. Right? It's, the, it's the invitation. He says, let us, this trinity, this, this heroic fellowship, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us make humankind in our image. And so male and female, he created that. And then he says, and now rule. I love in, El, in John Eldridge in Waking the Dead, he describes this idea of fierce mastery. He says like a shipper um, commands a ship, like a foreman runs a ranch, like a king rules a kingdom. We were made to rule. We were made to be powerful. We were made to build, to create. We are, we are um, co-creators with the creator of creation. But even in preparation for this time, I, I went online and I just looked at the news stories, top 10. Seven of the top 10 stories, the theme is mishandled power, particularly by men. See, Dallas Willard is once said that the primary work of God is finding men in whom he can entrust his power, finding men and women in whom he can entrust his power. And the story of most men is being entrusted with power and it bringing harm to themselves and those under their care. Let me just pause for a minute and just look at the world. Look at the general condition of things. Most companies, most schools, most coaches, most pastors, you see um, a, a struggle with mishandled power. The issue is power is not bad. Power is a good thing, but as you said, how do we become the kind of person who can steward what's been entrusted to our care, knowing that we are part of a much greater story, that we are not the owners. We are intended, um, that's why this word stewardship is very important. Our kids are our sacred trust. Our vocations are a sacred trust. And we do who we are. We ask this question about what am I supposed to do? And so many of us, particularly as men, get stuck on our calling because so much of it hinges on success or failure. But we get the cart before the horse when we focus on who we are, who we've become, and who we are becoming. In time and over time, we will find we do that which we are. And we will find we come alive and we bring that life to the world if we choose to do the first work of becoming wholehearted men. Yeah, that's, uh, I would love to unpack that in a thousand different ways and how my heart is reacting. The first piece is hope. Looking back into my story, a lot of what I found myself trying to do was to get power. I need it. Everyone seems to have it. Can you give an example? Yeah, all my friends are building these amazing companies. Yeah. They seem to be doing great. They're having great success, and I just feel behind, and I, I, I'm not catching up. What do I do? Give me the tips. Give me the techniques so that I can actually get ahead at least to the same level where everyone else seems to be, Yes. and then I'll, at least I'll be fine. Yes. And, and it's starting with the foundation of... Not the opposite to what you're describing is not God is intending for me to have power. It felt to me like it was quite the opposite. Everyone else seems to yes. receive 
great kingdoms and yes. great opportunities. I just need to work hard to make my life work, yes. to make it happen in the world. Mm -hmm. And so when you start by describing how God wants me and intends me to have power, and the problem is not how do I get power, the problem is how do I become the kind of person in, in whom God can entrust that power, the first thing that I feel is rest. Wait a second. So mm. I don't need to work that hard to get the power that I think I need. Could it be true that that's God's desire for me? Mm. Can I trust that that's the heart of God for me? Not, not just for the people right. that I see around, but for me particularly, that he's wanting to love me and form me and forged me. We're talking about those words so that I can actually be entrusted with the power he wants to give me. Yes. It is revolutionary because what I see in the world, my peers, my, most of the people that have been my managers and bosses over the, over the course of life, they all seem to be trying to get ahead, trying to build their own kingdoms yes. in their own strength from a position of scarcity, I would say. Yes. Yeah, and it's interesting how you just described that you had a feeling of rest yes. when you just receive that idea, right? You could actually feel an embodied sense of ease, Yes. right? This isn't up to you. Right, Dallas Willard often says, actions reveal beliefs 100% of the time. So we all have this creedal statement, these lists of doctrine. Yes. But if we actually look at our actions, what we do, they will reveal our true beliefs. And it takes humility to put down our theological scorecard or set of beliefs and look at our lives. Just take an inventory over an hour, over a day, and over a decade. What have you come to believe? Yes. What does your life tell you? And I believe that what you're, what you're naming, Pablo, is that as men, we live east of Eden. And fundamentally, we live out of an identity, though it's often unnamed as orphans, mm. that we are on our own. Life is up to us. We need to make it happen. Yes. So it's up to us, we need to make it happen, and fundamentally, we're behind, yes. right? I think when you interact with most men and what I felt for decades in my own soul is I am behind. Whatever it is, name yes. it. I'm behind in my finances. Yes. I'm behind in my fitness. You know, one of our friends, Aaron, confessed. He said, I'm behind in my landscaping. Like, I'm getting beat by the crabgrass. Yes. Like, I can't even name all the categories. But whatever it is, I'm behind. And what it reveals, it's very important to slow down and just pay attention to the narrative and see what's happening on the deeper level. You have to go subterranean. And what it reveals is a condition of fatherlessness, a worldview, a view of reality that fundamentally we're at its center. And here's what's so important, particularly as men, so long as we are at the center of our story, it will always feel like it's up to us. It will never be enough. We will always be on, um, behind. Yes. We, we will always be behind. And it will be a condition, I love the way Brene Brown describes it, is engineering smallness. Hmm. Engineering smallness. And so all of us men have a kingdom heart. We have the heart of God within us, His DNA. And we're meant to build. We're mandated to build. But what we do is we take that broken heart, that uninitiated heart, that unfathered heart, and we go out to the world and we start building. 
And in most men, we can really summarize it down to three things. We start making a name for ourselves. We start trying to get something going. And we start trying to make a little money. Whatever we do, if we just look, how much of your energy is make a name for yourself, make your mark in the world, get something going and yes. put a little money away, right? Yes. And the problem is we take a kingdom heart and settle for a small story. When the invitation of the Father is to say, I bless that desire. That desire to build is very good. That desire to build is God in us. But that desire is meant to be the fuel to engage in a process over time. It's not cheap. It's not quick. It's not easy. But the promise is life. And the fruit is life. It takes time. But in the process of becoming the kind of person that can handle power, that can do the good because they've become the good, um, that's the fruit yes. of a process of apprenticeship, a process of initiation, a lost art and lost ancient path. Yes that's being newly recovered in our age. And so I feel rest, but also hope rising, yes. just as we dialogue on this. That's beautiful. So I'm a 25-year-old man or a 35-year-old man, and my life up to this point has been those three categories that you yep. named. Basically, I'm trying to make life work. Yep. And I'm trying to get something going and get a name for myself and get a little money. And I'm exhausted, whether I'm succeeding and I need to do it again tomorrow, mm -hmm. and then again tomorrow, and I know that sooner or later I'm just going to burn down. Yes. Or I'm failing and I'm not able to do any of those three things and I'm just exhausted, and you're offering me a path. There is a different, there's an alternative. Yes. The desires that you have in your heart are good and God-given, but then there is a journey that you're invited to take. Yes. Where do I start? Because where do I sign? I right. want that. Right. Give, give me that. I need the alternative. I, I cannot keep going at this pace. Where do we start? Where, where, where do I start with that process? You know, I can't help but smile because I know you want that. Yes. And I know I want that. Yes. But there was a lot of my life I didn't want that. Mm. I wanted the shortcut. Yes. I wanted the, the cliff notes, mm. right? I, I, I got all A's in Spanish without ever learning Spanish for four years. I can't speak Spanish, but I got all A's. I played the game, right? Yes. I think there's an unspoken assumption there. You want that mm -hmm. because you've suffered enough. Yes. You've found your bottom. And so I think what I would say to a 25-year-old man is I'd say, how's that going for you? That building your kingdom thing. Yes. Because most 25-year-olds, it's going good enough. He's gonna keep climbing that ladder, keep scraping, he hasn't hit a bottom. And the father is very patient, Pablo. You know, one mentor, T Tozier, A.W. Tozier says, he waits to be wanted. Mm. And when we're busy, the father is quiet. Mm. He's not in a hurry. He's perfectly content. He's perfectly happy. And he wants to know when we hit a bottom of our life apart from him. And so to a 25-year-old man, I would say, how's that going? And if it's going well, I'd say, Good on you. Like, knock yourself out. Bless you. Let me know if things change. Yes. And to a man that has struggled and suffered and has pain, 
um, that's a man that I would want to sincerely look in his eyes and say, I'm sorry for your pain. Mm. I would like to hear about it. Yes. Tell me what you've lost. Mm. Tell me what it's cost you. Tell me your regrets. Tell yes. me the re consequences that you feel sorrow over. And often where that pain comes is from one of two places. It's either failure or success. Mm. It's very interesting how God in his severe mercy will use both. Because I meet a lot of men who failed and out of that failure have hit a bottom. But the men um, that I feel the most sorrow for, the men that succeeded, that they actually didn't burn out at 25, that they played the game and they find themselves at 40 and they've train wrecked their marriage and their teenage kids actually really aren't interested in having a relationship with them. And so I would ask, how's that going? I remember a mentor early in this process when I started in my pain asking older men this question. All right, I, I was a young man and outside I was looking pretty good. I gave my life to God and rescuing the hearts of people all around the world and partnering with John Eldridge with Wild at Heart and beautiful wife, two young kids, you know, starting a little nest egg. On the outside I was good, but on the inside that wasn't true to the landscape. There was fear, there was anxiety, there were all the conditions of what I couldn't have named at the time, but being an orphan. And I said, my interior doesn't match my exterior. There's a dissonance and I'm no longer okay with a divided life. I want the real thing. And I remember turning to mentors and asking, where's life? Like, where do we find it? How do we recover it? What is the most important thing? And one of the mentors said, just look at the older men in your world the men in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and ask, what took them out? Where did they lose their way? And Pablo, it was so shocking, because I went, wait a minute, that, like no man ever holds their young newborn child in their hands and says, someday I hope that this child will never want relationship with me. Mm. No man ever steps on an altar and says in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad, thinking, I can't wait till this marriage is over. Mm. Like, son, what happened? And what stopped me, it rested me in my path, Pablo, was those men were like me. How will I not mm. have that same story when I'm 50? Yes, how do, and, how do I not end up there? Exactly, and yes. it wasn't by judgment. It was simply confession going, Maybe these exclamation points I carry in my belief system, in humility, I need to replace with question marks. Mm. Because most men in their 20s, life becomes a set of exclamation points, right? We're passionate about the, the culture's causes, our own causes. You look at protesters online and often it's teenagers, yes. right? And young people. Yeah. And there's a lot of energy. And... Um, they haven't experienced the sorrow of the complications of life yes. and suffered in the way that um, really requires a lot of introspection, the wisdom to come to the center of another person's story. And so I found myself turning and asking those questions and I realized that I was the 25-year-old mm. and I was at a crossroads and I knew something wasn't well, and I can either keep ignoring the check engine lights on the dashboard of my soul, 
Yes. And I could end up with a very sad story. Or I could start paying attention, listening to my own soul, listening for the heart of God, starting to ask a lot more questions. Who is God, really? Not just what the theology says I'm supposed to believe, but what have I come to believe about who God is? Like, what is the story, really? Because our hearts are story-centered. We're story creatures, and we will gravitate towards the biggest, best story we can find. What is the story I've come to believe about reality? Who am I really as a man yes. and uniquely as Morgan Snyder? What did God mean? What did God intend since before the creation of the world? And what is my frontier? Like what is the edge at which I'm meant to risk? I'm meant to exercise faith, grow and trust, become a student and apprentice to develop skillful hands, literally, and integrity of heart. How do I become the kind of person where my secret life changes from being the place of my hidden shame to my superpower mm. and my greatest mm. strength? Like, I wanna believe that's possible. Yes. And so I began asking questions, and it's a good place to start. What are your questions? It was a long response, but to get to what are your questions? I remember the first time a man laid out the gospel. I was already a Christian. I had given my life over to God. Repentance was enough. I had enough sin. I had hurt and harmed enough people in my life to say, I just need forgiveness. Yes. That was plenty. But then I was uninitiated. I was unhealed, but I was trusting God. And so I needed to take this path of restoration. And I finally heard the gospel presented in a way that was big enough for all that God said in my heart. It was John Eldridge laying out the sacred romance. And I was a student now 20, going on 23 years ago. And he laid out a gospel big enough, big enough for every heart mm. in creation, big enough for every dream and story, big enough to contain sorrow and suffering and dreams and desires, big yes. enough to contain masculinity restored and femininity restored adventure and practices in the ancient and the young. And I wanted more. And I just knew it was like the book of John and him was life and his life was the light of men. He had shown me a gospel in whom there was life and light. So I went to John's office and said, I'm in, I'm in. Like, where do I sign up? I'm all in. I want this gospel you're presenting. And he said, well, what are your questions? <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you, I, I don't even know my questions. Like, I thought you just tell me what's next. And he said, that's okay. But all apprenticeship, in the kingdom of God and in masculine initiation is shaped by the questions. Mm. And so find your questions. Mm. And that's where it began of finding my questions. Mm. Yeah. As, as you're asking or as you're suggesting better that the process starts with identifying your questions. The question that comes to my heart as I look back into my story is, why am I trying so hard? Mm. What would you, how would you react to that question uh, as coming to you as mm. a sage, as an elder? You know, Pablo, a question I would ask you back about that question is, how 
often and in how many places in your life do you experience that question surfacing? Is it specific to one area or do you see it raising its, its name, its face in lots of places in your story? Yes. In my story, in my, my particular story, it's been very closely tied to career. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier in my marriage, and the question is no longer that, fortunately, it was very closely, closely related to marriage. Mm-hmm. How do I make this thing work? Yes. I'm exhausted, and I don't know how to make this work. And see, what's interesting about that is these are two very different realms, yes. right? Your marriage yes. and your work. But one friend you know, said it this way, uh, you know, he said the problem with vacations, he came home from a vacation exhausted. And he said the problem with vacations <laughs> is I go with me. I go with me, right? We yes. want a vacation, everyone yes. wants a vacation. But what we often find is the problem is we go with us. Mm. We need a vacation from us, mm. right? That same thing haunts mm. us. And what I'm naming is those questions are deep and it actually has very little to do with your work or your marriage. Mm. It's expressing itself there, but it's deeper. How do I make this work? Yes. Right? First of all, well done. Way to find that question because our stories are telling us something if we're willing to listen. Um, Life has a story form to it and we have to become students of our story and we'll notice these patterns that don't go away, even with a job change or relationship change. We find these similar situations, the guy that just always acquiesces, whatever the situation, the guy that always commandeers, the guy that always has the first, or I would say the guy that always has to have the last word on everything. Hmm. He has to be heard, right? But then there's the guy that never speaks up right, for fear of being misunderstood or being Mm. wrong. Mm. We all have questions. And what I would um, be curious about is how those questions point to pain that we try to medicate. We try to use so many things to change how we feel. That's what medication does. And I don't mean medication like aspirin. I mean anything we reach to, to change how we feel. Mm. You know, I enjoyed a beer last night and it was the second one that I reached for that I didn't need, but I wanted to change. What I was looking for is relief. Yes. But what I needed was restoration, Mm. right? I wanted to change how I felt. Yes. So what I find in masculine initiation, Pablo, is so often the pain are symptoms of a condition that we're trying to medicate. And if we look below the symptoms, what we will find is a condition of fatherlessness. It manifests itself in so many different forms, but fundamentally what we will find is a condition, a belief that we are on our own, that we don't really have a father who is orchestrating our story, who has our best interest in mind, a father who's generous, who's affectionate, who is more than capable of shepherding us through a process of becoming wholehearted, of recovering our joy, 
of, of becoming the kind of person that can have meaningful and true integrous relationship. We live as orphans or slaves. And, and what's so important is we never live beyond our identity. It's so important to understand identity is the essence of who we've come to believe about who we truly are. And we will live out that story. Yes. So our lives and how we choose to live say a lot about identity. And for me, um, this theme of chasing my questions and tracing them back to recover a condition of fatherlessness hmm. began what I would name as the greatest conversion in my life. Hmm. Can, you, can you speak more into that? Because you're describing a view of the world where it is basically up to me. And what I want to say is, it is. Right. Right? And historically, yes. that was my way of living for most of my life. Yes. And so what you're describing is, is just reality. Right. I'm on my own. If I don't make it happen, it's not going to right. get done. Life is up to me. Right. If I don't go and work and bring provision for my family is not going to, you know, rain from the sky. Exactly. Right? Right. It's almost cruel. Yes. Right. To, to suggest there's another way. Right? And what's so important to understand is we see things not as they are. We see as we are. We yes. all look through glasses. Mm -hmm. We all look through a lens. And that's how we perceive reality. So long as we have a belief that we are orphans and that there isn't a good loving father, we will live as orphans because we will interpret as orphans. Hmm. We will interpret as slaves. That's how we will view the very story in front of us. It took my wife being admitted to a psychiatric treatment center for severe anxiety and depression after the birth of our second child. Abigail, for me to come to the end of my rope and realize I was an orphan. I loved God. I had my trust and my confidence in Him, but I was still an orphan and living like one, though I couldn't even have named it. I just felt like it was up to me. And even my faith yes. is up to me. Yes. Even my being a good man was up to me. And my wife was struggling with severe anxiety and depression, and it wasn't her first bout, but it got deep. And um, I share a, a, a lot about this in the book, Becoming a King, the video, and, and, and help share my story for other men to recover their own. But for this moment, um, just to be authentic, she was in a hospital. My son was three, my daughter was newborn, and my in-laws, we were at a treatment center in their hometown in the Midwest, and they were gracious to basically benevolently help me see that I wasn't very helpful in the situation. Yeah. The best thing I could do is get some distance. Some distance. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so they said, hey, you have a three-year-old son, go give him some summer. Why don't you go to your parents' house and just take some space. So we did that. So here I am with my son, and you're in the stage, you know this yes, stage with Lucas. Mm. And Joshua was three and we're driving the Ford Explorer from Illinois to Pittsburgh and he was having the time of his life. A road trip with dad? Like, 
I, was, I am the center of his world, right? He has a father-centered view of reality. And at mm. three, that's mm. really a good thing because mm. I'm giving him a picture of the father in that piece. Mm. But what happened was we ended up in my childhood bedroom of all places. And we were on two twin mattresses and we were nose to nose with this little three-year-old kind of mini me. And he looked me in the eye. Um, and actually what happened earlier that day, as I remember it, I was returning something to the store, Home Depot, something for my dad. And I was putting little Joshua in his car seat. And I was walking around my Ford Explorer and I collapsed. I was that man you described, yeah. carrying the weight of the world. Mm. I'll come through for anyone and everyone. I'm the strongest man in my world. Mm. I have to be to survive. I want life yes. and I want to make it last. And this is how you do it. Yes. And Pablo, I couldn't hold it up anymore. I was just crushed by the weight of it all. And I found myself on the hot asphalt in a July. It was a steamy asphalt. My three-year-old son's in the car, strapped in a hot car. My wife's in a psychiatric hospital trying to nurse our child. And I'm on the asphalt. I thought, this is not good. Like, I help lead a Christian ministry. I help rescue the hearts of men. I restore families. What has come of me? And there was a voice. Some, I couldn't have named at the time, but there was a presence and there was some beckoning of the Father saying like, son, get up. We can do this together. I put my, uh, you know, I, I, I got back in the car, got my wits about me, and that night we were laying nose to nose. And my son said, hey, daddy, you know, we're brothers. And I thought that was the most endearing moment. But I'm thinking, you know, we're not really brothers. I'm your dad, you're my son. And I felt what now I see is the Holy Spirit say, stay here. Yes. Don't leave. Stay here. Mm. And I said to Joshua, why are we brothers? And he looked at me like, you know, you don't know? And he said, Dad, God is your father and God is my father and that makes us brothers. Hmm. And Pablo, it was in that moment that I did what is the most powerful act I've ever found in parenting, ever. And I looked him in the eyes, his big blue eyes, and I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? I said, you're right, Joshua. God is your father and God is my father. There's someone stronger than me in your life. And we both need his strength. And so we're going to pray tonight and ask God to be our father. We are his sons. And so we're going to choose to become his sons. And we began that night over a decade ago. And we ask God to father us and we've not missed a day in over a decade of becoming what we truly are. And what's amazing in that story, Pablo, is my wife was ill and struggling and she even got worse after that. But something shifted because up to then I couldn't have named that come through for everyone. I need to make it happen. Yes. I need to be strong and carry the way of the world. I was simply doing that in my faith and doing that in my marriage. And what yes. I didn't know was I was actually putting pressure on the woman that I love the most, the only human being that I ever entered a covenant relationship with. Mm. And I was part of what put her in that hospital. And I had no idea. Mm. I was so unaware because of my false self.
some shift happened that day where I realized I might not be able to save my wife's life. She might take her life. I might lose my marriage. That's not guaranteed. I cannot save my marriage on my own. I can't save her life on my own. But what I have control over, what's in my power, is to become the kind of person that my wife deserves. To become the kind of person that can be well apart from any and every circumstance. And I knew that day it began and was rooted in sonship. And so that day was a, what I just simply call as a radical conversion, but also the beginning of a process. It was an encounter and a process. Yes. And it's something that continues to this very day. Last night, uh, my son turned 16 and uh, Joshua drove out first time last night in his own car he bought it with his own money that he you know he earned landscaping this spring and we paid 50 percent. he paid 50 percent. he paid me off before he even had a license to drive it and he drove away to a party and he was really beautiful and the same little boy the same little boy was your brother and it's just on time right he's on time Mm -hmm. and i remember that same day when I turned 16, I was so committed to getting a license because I was going out on a date with a girl and I just didn't want to miss the date because that was my drug, right? It's like, I want to show this girl how amazing I am. And I went on a date with her and then the next day I drove, I dropped her off, it was a crappy date and then I drove to a park by myself and I sat on the hood of my car and I remember just feeling so alone mm. and I had this wonderful car that was given to me, I didn't even pay for it. But what I didn't have was a father engaging me emotionally. What I had was nowhere to take my questions. And I sat on the hood of my car and I remember thinking, this really marks that I'm on my own and it's up to me. I'm a man. I must be because I have the keys to a car and now I'm driving this expensive car. So I don't even know how to take care of it, but I'm a man. And so I now need to act like a man. And I just drove the dagger of self-sufficiency in. Yesterday I got to watch my son and he's so strong. And, and actually, Sherry told me before we drove up here today, she said that Joshua actually said to her, like, you know, he's, she said, Joshua, like, how was it, you know? And we were laying in bed this morning, and Sherry said, you know, he said, as he said, it was really cool, but he said, it was actually pretty lonely because, like, I miss being with you, Mom. Like, we've had so much fun. Like, all those drives to school, and my mom or his mom, my wife, was saying, like, we've really laughed a lot together. And so just the contrast of a man Mm. at 16 who lived and is living in a worldview, a view of reality that's father-centered. There's abundance, not scarcity. There's courage and not fear. There's room to fail. He's failed in many ways, and it's not been an indictment contrasted to my story, but what's so hopeful is we all can become sons. There is always a path back. There all is available to every human being at every moment, a narrow gate to recover the path that is life. And so much of it is rooted in sonship. It's so foundational um, and it's available to all of us, whatever age or stage we find ourselves. That's one of the most important categories, if not the most for me as well. I, One of our early encounters, um, 
as I was sitting and learning at your feet and you brought this message of sonship and my first reaction was, well, that's easy for you to say. You actually had actually a pretty good dad. I didn't get any of this. And so what is what you're saying that I just get God as a plan, like a plan B because right. I didn't have the total the, backup, the right? For guys that and, don't have a good dad. And, and what does that look like? Is it because up to that point, Christian life for years, it was mostly about this is my plan to make life work and yes. God, please come and bless it. Exactly. And what you're suggesting is a total reorientation when all of this is actually up to him and I can get the weight of the world off my shoulders and give it to him exactly and trust that he wants to actually empower me and give me a kingdom that he wants me to be blessed and to prosper and to have a great marriage and that all those things I don't have to work exactly and earn by the sweat of my right. own brow but I can actually trust that he's orchestrating this and I can participate of his plan Right, and if you just pause for a moment and allow that to be true, just even as you're saying it, I feel it and go, I rest into something stronger. Mm. I feel more at ease. I feel more comfortable in my own skin. And it's not, that he, it's not simply just that he wants it for you, but Pablo, it, it's his primary mission. Ephesians says it's his will mm. and his joy. Mm. It's his fierce intention to be our fathers and us to come home as his true sons. You know, Galatians says that the full inheritance made available to Jesus, God's son, is made available to us. We are the full heirs of the kingdom. We are given all of it. But it's not until we come to receive it that we can live into the fruit of what that can do in our lives. Yes. And so you're describing an encounter and, and then on a process because I want more of this. Yes. If this is available, I do want to turn yes. and begin to live as a son. Yes. And so I'm choosing to risk in believing so and I'm going to ask my father God to actually father me. Yes. But tomorrow the bills begin to come in. And right. how does that reorientation happen once we bring it from the concept to Tuesday at 2 o'clock? Right, because it has to be practical, right? Yes. These are big ideas. I mean, these yes. are formative ideas that we barely touch in. But it, at the end of the day, if it's not practical, um, we, 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 we can't, it doesn't have stick to it, right? right? It doesn't have a cling. And what I would suggest is if it's true, right? Dallas Willard says truth is what we bump our heads against what we run into when we're wrong. Hmm. So if it's true, we can test it and find it to be reliable. Hmm. That's the brilliance of truth and goodness and beauty. Test it. Yes. You'll know it by its fruit. And so, God, I consecrate my ability to see. Hmm. I consecrate the lens, the interpretation I'm using. And I ask that you would father me. And now give me eyes to see how you're fathering me. So here's a really cool exercise, is take a piece of paper and say, God, I believe that you are my true father. I believe that. I'm willing to risk trying that on. Yes. And now God, help me remember ways that you did father me mm -hmm. or that you were trying to father me in my life in the past, but I didn't have the ability to receive your love. I actually was closed off to your love for whatever reason. Um, some mentors call it redemptive remembering. 
because the Father is always at work. One mentor said that at any stage, at any phase of our life, someone, something was the face of God to us. Mm. You know, my son was in charge of packing the camper in Glacier um, after camping at a, at a campground, and um, I gave him my backpack with my Bibles and my journals and my books and my computer and asked him to put it in the camper, and he put it on the sidewalk next to the camper in Montana. And by God's grace, I got a call when I was in Wyoming saying, um, I found your backpack. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my goodness. And mm. the brilliance of it, it was, it was a moment. There were so many moments of how I choose to interpret that, yes. right? I can see it as like um, an orphan, right? Of yes. just, I work so hard and look how things go wrong. And I can feel that temptation. Yes. But there was this other voice of like, look at my father providing for me yes. in this situation. And then my son is very responsible. So the last thing he needs me is to come down on him for being irresponsible because right. that's not his frontier. Mm. For someone else, it may be their frontier, but not for my son. Mm. And so this has to be an area of blessing and benevolence of son. It's okay. I forgive you. Now there is a consequence and we're going to split the cost of getting that shipped back to us because we're going to pay this guy generously and pay for the you know, expedited shipping. We'll split that. Um, there's a cost to it. There's a lesson to learn. But I bless you. I bless you. And so redemptive remembering is really wow. huge. Um, looking back into your story. And the reason why I share that is one of my practices, a very practical way. And this is really helpful. Um, there were some young men sitting with Dallas Willard. He's a theologian, a philosopher, um, pastored a lot of people in uh, Southern California, has recently passed on to the kingdom. He was a father to many of us. And some young men were sitting with him. And they said, what do you do every day? Like, it's your daily routine, like on a normal day to spend time with God. And he began with a very long pause as Dallas often does because he is not in a hurry. <laughs> and he started with this response. He said, you have to be very careful with that question because there are no ordinary days. Mm. Just that, yeah. right? Every day has a bloody battle. I mean, just the men participating in this conversation, like, well done. Yes. Well done to choose some yes. life. Well done to value yourself with enough dignity to say, I'm worth this time. And so he went on to say, what can I do on any day, regardless of what day it is? And I found that counsel to be very helpful. And so I have practices that are accessible to me on any day because there are no ordinary days. And the primary one is when I wake up every day, the first thing I do before I move, before I step out of bed, before I pee, is I pause and I say to my soul, I am the son of God. Hmm. And I look to God in my soul and say, you are my father. And I choose to become your son today. Hmm. I choose to allow you to father me. Yes. And then the next step I've been taking more recently has been a powerful, and that's where I remember the story of the backpack is, I asked God the Father to show me how he fathered me yesterday, wow. to remind me yesterday. And so we had this, one of our cousins is staying with us and we just had this laughter last night 
making videos of my kids laughing with my cousin. We just had this moment of laughter. And when laughter fills my house, a man who's intense, prone to being moody, um, can really struggle with depression. When laughter fills my house, my heart is glad. Mm. I lay in bed this morning, just briefly. God, you are my father. I am your son. Will you father me today? It gives me a lens by which I see all things. It's my interpretive grid. I am not an orphan. I am not a slave. I choose to receive my abundance. I was paying my taxes today. I paid a lot of taxes today in my return, more than I've ever paid in my life. It was a day where I could feel the pull of like, this is crap. This is crap. Like I've worked too hard for this. It's cost me so much. You know, I'd take the bikes into the shop and I love to do the work by myself and I, I wasn't able to do some of this technical work. Ended up being like $500 fixed. My truck is in the shop. So prone in this moment to feel scarcity and finances a particular place where I feel struggle. And instead in that moment in my bed, I'm a son, you are my father. I choose to become a son today and remind me how you fathered me yesterday. Beautiful. It, it, it's very practical. Yes. It's two degrees. It's direction over destination. It's not a 180 degree shift, but it's beginning to see clearly and look for the Father, look for the face of God. That man that called about my backpack, he could have stole my computer. Mm. He could have pocketed a bunch of money. And I was able to write a note to him and say, thank you, Ben. You Mm. were the face of God to me. You were the face Mm. of my Father Mm. last week. I don't know if you know that, but you were. Thank you. Wow. You know, here's a hundred bucks and here's the cost for shipping back. That's amazing. It's a father-centered view of reality. And what I hear you saying that is you have the capacity to choose that every morning. It's always a choice. Even though you feel something different, right? You get the tax return and you see the number oh. and the pool is, I don't feel like a son, Pablo, every but I'm day, choosing to believe I am. And even more than that, I think it's fair to say our friends out there are like, and, and this, was a, uh, an eighth, or this was a mentor that I'm, I'm borrowing this line. Nothing's new. It's newly recovered. But he said, every day I wake up an agnostic. Mm. I think it was Lewis that said it. Mm. I know that feeling. Every yes. day I wake up not believing in God. That's okay. We live in bloody battle. We live in a fallen world. But the truest thing about us is that we are sons. That's what's true. We don't have to manufacture that. We have to simply respond to God's initiative. That's the brilliance of what you were talking about. The the, um, inverse of it's up to me, I need to make it happen, is to come to understand that we're not made to be self-sufficient. Jesus was not an autonomous being. Mm-hmm. And we so often think about the white robe and he's perfect and he never cried, he never farted and he never had a hard day. Like he was human and he was not autonomous. Yeah. He was utterly dependent on his father by design. Yes. Whatever else we see in Jesus, the real Jesus, we see modeled what it looks like to live as a son. Mm-hmm. Right? Jesus says, I am one with you, Father, one in heart with you, Father, and one in mind with you, Father. And I pray that all those that you've entrusted to my care would become one in heart and mind with you as I am one in heart and mind with you. That is what's available. That's what he models. That was the source of his strength. He was not ruled by circumstances 
our outcomes, and that life is made available to us each and every day. And in what you're describing about him, about Jesus himself particularly, part of what strikes me is that he also went orphaned from his earthly father, mm. but he learned to live as a son yes. of his heavenly father in the same way that it is available for us. Yes. So he also had to choose, I'm not alone, I'm going to do what I see my father doing and I'm going to say what I hear my father saying. Exactly. And choose daily to live in union. Right, we know. We know a couple things about him. We, know, we don't know a lot about his sonship, right? right. It, we know it's true. We know he models it, but there's a lot of mystery, but we know he lost his father right. at a young age, right? We know he lost his father at a young age. We also know this fascinating idea. So at 12, he's lost. Yes. For three days, mom and dad can't find his 12-year-old you have almost a 12 year old right i have a 16 year old could you imagine for three days not being able to find this child and the scriptures say he was in the temple and people were amazed by his teaching and here's what we skip like he was not very thoughtful about his parents okay it was a very immature decision Yes. It wasn't a sinful decision, he's perfect, right. but it was immature. Yes. The scriptures say Jesus had to grow in wisdom and mm. stature. Jesus had to go through masculine initiation. Wow. He wasn't born a, a baby adult, right? Like some of the art shows him. He was born like crapping his pants. They didn't have diapers, but he crapped himself, right? He had to mature, and so he was a rather self-centered human being at 12 because that's the nature of 12 that's literally the brain development okay and and so we have this jesus who is not thinking much about his parents he's thinking about what he wants to think about and he was fascinated with god in his kingdom mm. and what he says to his parents was didn't you know i was in my father's house about yes. my father's business mm. at this point in the story he has an amazing dad we know, the few things we know about Joseph based on marrying a woman who everyone is saying is a whore. So she's either identity, the whore that people are saying, or she's been impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, crazy. Totally right, crazy right? woman. Yeah. yeah, like what if Juanita came to you and said, hey, we're having a third child, but sure. it's not yours. Yeah. It was the Holy Spirit. He's a man of great faith. We know that story. Mm. And even in that situation, Jesus' orientation was to his heavenly father. I find that so hopeful, both extremes. Yes. Both this, this idea of where I lack and also even abundance. Do not be distracted by the source. Or, or, or what I should say, do not be distracted by what the source is intended to be. Yes. Right? It's through our earthly father that we are intended to find our Heavenly Father, and it's available. Wow. So I find myself with this new alternative. I can actually go through a journey, through a process of stop, stop living as an orphan and as a slave, and reorient my life to living as a son. And you're modeling some of the daily practices that allow you to actually center yourself in that Father-centered view of the world daily. Um, just like Jesus, who is choosing to live in union with God. Total, completely helpful, right? And, and so I wake up, I'm in that place, I go to work, and I begin to now go through my day. And my objective, my desire is to begin searching for that union with God. Yes. Um, thoughts on that? How do I continue building on that? How do my, my automatic, my default is to actually go back into 
businessman mode. Yep. I walk into the boardroom and it is like, Jesus, please bless me in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. And it's like hanging up the phone. And now I'm back into this mode where I forgot about God. Absolutely. Because that man in you and in every one of us, the without God life, yes. right? The false self, he's very mature. Mm-hmm. He's very sophisticated. We have to appreciate he's very practiced, right? The false in us has spent decades manufacturing a small story, right? Engineering smallness to make life work apart from God. Yes. That man does not go away overnight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, most great films are the excerpts, right? They don't show the in-between. They don't show the mundane. Yes. They don't show the time that it takes. So what I would suggest is to appreciate our false self is rather sophisticated and insulating. And so a couple thoughts on it would be first, kindness to ourselves. Mm. How are we choosing to be kind? To say, just the next step, just two degree shift, just do the next thing. You get up from a mistake and you say, okay, let's try it again, right? A, a, a kindness towards our own heart that God would have towards us. Um, that's, that's really important. Um, Another piece I would say is we have to become a student of who the false self is and who the true self is. Like I shared earlier, it took years to really name that epitaph, that grave marker of what is the mission, what is the fruit of the false man in me? If I give him the reins of my life, that I am, I am loved when I come through the results will be the people that I really was um, intended to steward. My wife, my Mm. kids, my circle of friends would stand around my grave. And what they'd have to say is he came through proudly, meaning independently, self-sufficiently, and anxiously, always Mm. worked up and never at rest for many and much. He came through for many and much, proudly and anxiously at the expense of who and what mattered most. I don't wanna be that man. Much of that was for survival. There's a kindness even to my false self that I've learned. So much of our kindness insulates us with deep trauma, deep abuse. I mean, we're into deep waters here. We can't unpack this all in a day. But nonetheless, there comes a point where that faithful soldier is no longer helpful to us anymore. Yes. And we have to invite him to be put to death so that another man can be resurrected. Yes. That new man is young, and we have to be kind to the new man as well. It takes practice. That's why this is apprenticeship. That's an important word. You know, the idea of being a disciple can be an overly religious and misunderstood word. It's not a program, it's not dogmatic. It's a process of becoming a student becoming a son, becoming a warrior, being trained in over time to become wholehearted, to heal the young places, to deliver the bond, the bound places. And being kind, taking it slow, becoming students of the false and the true in us, over time, we begin to welcome, and this is deep waters, but welcome death, a passing through death to a greater life. 
because we realize there are things that no longer serve us. Yes. And what I've learned, for example, my coming through was not serving me. I had to learn and practice becoming a disappointing person. Hmm. That's one of my greatest fears is to disappoint people out of my false self. Yes. But Jesus was a profoundly disappointing person to some and to many on some occasions. You look at the text in Mark chapter one, he didn't heal everybody that came to him asking for physical healing. That's not what he was after primarily, though some physical healings happen in scripture. He didn't heal all of them. There are moments where he healed some, more show up the next day and whew, he's gone. Yes. He's gone. His, his, his students can't find him and they find him out in the hills. Like, Jesus, like, the show must go on. There's more people to be healed. Like there, there's almost like a riot down there. You healed the lepers and the lame yesterday. What are you gonna do about all these other broken people? And Jesus just turns to them nonchalantly. He goes, I was with my father. Didn't you know I'd be with my father? I came here to preach the gospel. This is my mission is to save humanity not simply to heal disease mm. or heal the lame. Let's go to the next city. I'm out of here. Wow. What do you do with Jesus's willingness to disappoint people? Yes. And so it only comes through practice. Mm. Yeah, it is both terrifying and helpful, I think. Um, a few years ago, I was sitting with Juanita, my wife, and it was late at night, the kids are in bed, we have a wine, a glass of wine, and this is my time to rescue the beauty. And so I'm beginning to you know, make my move oh, and ask her ready. how her heart is. And then she says, living with you sometimes is like living with a sergeant who's set on his ways and who is more concerned with finishing his mission than on loving the people that, that uh, he lives with stopped me right on my tracks and... How did you feel when she said that? What was your internal response? It was civil war. Um, mm -hmm. I had to, and thank God, I just remained quiet for the next 55 years, it felt like, but yes. it was maybe a couple of minutes. Uh, one part of me, the, the default was going to just start arguing why she's wrong and how unfair and unjust everything that she's saying is when all that I do and everything that I want to do is for her and for mm. our kids and for our family. So that's one person in you. There's yeah. a self that wants to defend, argue, explain. Yes. And I have to be honest, it was not because of my virtue or my, my maturity. It was about to start laying her, letting her know. And actually a deer came out from behind the cabin where we were and she said, oh, look, a deer. And the spirit used that moment to say, pause right there mm. and consider what you say. And she was looking at the deer and uh, deer schmear. I was just angry. And then God said, she's right. You know that she is mm. right. Um, and I began, that was like God pulling a string yes. and beginning to unravel everything. And what she was expressing in light of what you're saying is her, the impact that that false self in me has had on her and on our, on our kids. Yes. Because that false self is trying to make life work from a position of 
that orphan spirit yes. that we're describing. Yeah, so do good things, be a good man, right. but in the service of the orphan. Correct. The actual motive is not so much love, right. it is actually fear. Yes. I'm going to work long hours and I'm going to break my back if I need to, not because I'm just a kind and loving husband doing what God is asking him to do for the sake of his people, but more because I'm afraid that if I don't do it, I'm not going to have enough like I didn't have enough growing up. Yes. And so that obviously exposed all of those things. And so part of what I began to practice was um, following your advice, practicing the discipline of dropping the pencil at five, mm -hmm. closing my laptop at five, but that felt like death. And so yes. the hope was, what if I begin to practice this discipline and choosing to let go of that mission that that sergeant is set on his ways, yes. And instead, I choose to come and turn around and be a husband and be a father and begin to love my family mm. the way that I want them. I want, I honestly want to love them and the way Beautiful. that they want to be loved. Um, but it felt like death. Yes. And I remember just the pull. I can't. Be, and the fear of what if I actually close yes. my laptop right now? What if tomorrow? What if my boss? What if the finances? Right. But. Choosing that courageously over time began to grow a strength in me to realize, oh, wait a second, God did come through for me. Yes. Maybe I do live as, maybe I am a son. Maybe I do have access to this place of sonship that I didn't know existed even right. in the process. Anything else that you would want to say about that and practices and disciplines that can allow us to begin disentangling that false self from the true self and orient us more towards the, the heart of God as a father? Mm -hmm. First of all, I want to say, God bless Juanita. Yes, God bless. God bless Juanita. Yes. God bless Sherry. Yes. And well done. Mm. Well done. Because so few men ever get to that point. And I know that you're under construction. Yes. I know you're in process. But Pablo, well done. I think what I just want to do is reflect back some things I see in what you just shared. Yes. You just described that civil war eloquently, right? Where she, here's a romantic night and a glass of wine and part of you is like being a good man and loving your wife. The other person honestly is also going for yeah. the goods, right? Yep. Like you want something out of it, right? Yep. I deserve it. Yep. And then she throws the bomb yep. and the old you, right? The false self raises his head. Are you kidding? I've done this for you. Like, what are you talking about? And why would you accuse me? That's the, the sergeant. Yep. It's really validating. Totally. That's the sergeant, but you're aware. Ex exposing. Exactly. Horrible. And I know your story, and so you've told me other stories where that sergeant has taken the reins yes. and lashed back out. He's yep. been reactive. Yep. And what I hear in your story is there was a pause. By God's grace, the Spirit sends a deer. You, but you practice enough of that harnessed strength, just enough. It's just a turning to pause and say, Spirit, and then to go, I want to listen. And the humility to go, and there's truth in what she's saying. And what I want to point out is that's the civil war. Mm -hmm. But as we become aware of the true and false, then we begin to disentangle them and say, here's what's true about me and here's what's not true. And that's when we can begin dismantling the false man and restoring the true man over time. And what, what's fascinating about what you just shared was it always has to do with death. Hmm. Masculine initiation and becoming a king is always synonymous with passing through uh, experiences of death. 
to move to a greater life. Life gives way to death, so that death might give way to life. And nature, which is meant to be our first text, um, teaches us this story, right? It's all through the scriptures, it's all through nature. If we pause and, and consider it, life always comes out of death. And so, so much of initiation is moving through these greater deaths into a greater life until we become the kind of person, like Paul says in Philippians, that nothing can harm us. Yes. That even in death, actually in physical death of our bodies, we step into the greatest life of all lives, the restoration of all things. In the end of our earthly apprenticeship, yeah. we become fully and totally who we were meant to be. And so as we practice, what I hear you saying is, you also exercise that muscle instead of lashing out and validating her faithful sergeant, or you know, that you demand and you control, you practice, I'm gonna do something that's yes. in my power to access grace, which is a power that we cannot manufacture on our own. So the discipline of that's enough for a day. Mm. I remember when a mentor said to me, like Morgan, do you know how much is enough for a day? I said, no. And inside I could say, whatever it is, it's more than I've done. Yeah. And he said, I think mostly you do too much in a day. You need to ask the question of God, when is enough for a day? And there has to be a spiritual practice because it's soulful. Of like you said, the proverbial, drop your pencil, because the world never sleeps anymore, right? And with the digital information age, we're all on 24 seven. And it's only by choosing to say, here's a boundary. Hmm. I close the laptop. I put the pencil down. That's enough for a day. And so what I hear you saying is you're practicing that. And what I loved in that story, Pablo, is you also shared there was a strengthening. Mm -hmm. No, you're not where you were, but something's being strengthened. And I would suggest that's why Juanita actually risked sharing something about you to you that felt very brutal because she actually knows she's safe. A woman who doesn't feel safe never shares those sort of things. It's actually a validating sign that she knows the man you want to be and she knows you actually, the truest Pablo, wants feedback and actually will consider it and take it in. And so you exercise that muscle and whatever we exercise gets strengthened and whatever we choose to walk away from will get weakened and put to death. And so it's very important to think in terms of life and death because we'll begin to see opportunities to put to death small deaths that are actually the fuel for our false self so that we can pass through to a greater life that results in us becoming who we were meant to be both in wholeheartedness and in a life that's actually union with God. Not just this um, ethereal faith in God or um, set of beliefs, but an actual living, breathing, moment by moment, walk with God, conversation, intimacy, friendship, curiosity, and an understanding that our Father wants to be near. He wants to be known and he wants to know us, and that intimacy is actually where we came from and where we're headed, and it's available to us today more than we have come to believe. Wow. What I'm um, hearing you say as well is you're describing the strengthening of a muscle, which means 
the expectation of overnight results is just not kind to us. You're describing a process, you're describing a journey. Um, when I first attended one of your intensive retreats, I think it was 2014, mm -hmm. the first one. Um, so we're coming on the second half of the decade now. And one piece of advice, one of your categories that has been really helpful was living the day and measure in the decade. And, and for me to accept the invitation to a decade of initiation, to a decade of transformation, of restoration and becoming good soil and becoming a king, uh, felt like forever. Mm -hmm. You're asking me to pause. You're asking me to, instead of trying to get ahead and catch up right. with everyone else, to slow down and pause and focus on becoming and on my character instead of trying to catch up. Yes. It's been six years since then. Um, and I have to tell you that I wouldn't change this process for anything in the mm. world because I have found the treasure in the field. And, wh and what do you notice? What do you see in the live in a day and measure in a decade that felt ludicrous yes. in the moment, but now I see in your eyes, you found it to be true six years in. Yes. What do you experience? First, the gold was there and I was not paying attention to it because I was trying to make life work instead of accepting the journey to become a son and live from that place of sonship and allow my father to father me instead of making life work on my own terms. I began to see my wife as she is, not as I was seeing her. I began to see my boys as they are, not as I was seeing them. And I began to enjoy them and to be there for them, to be present mm. and to enjoy a home filled with laughter mm. and to be there for dinner and for Legos and for wrestling and for um, just presence, true yes. presence. When before, even though I was there physically, I was not really there. I was either completely exhausted from whatever the day had thrown my way, or I was distracted thinking about what I didn't do or what I needed to do the day after. And so completely pulled out from the present moment. And so I have recovered my present time. And in doing so, I have recovered the love for the people that I yes. love the most and their love in return. And so not from a place of validation, but from a place of simply the measurement over the decade of the transformation. Um, one day I was just laying on the couch with my youngest son on, on my chest. And the same woman who said what she said uh, out there as we were having that glass of wine came to me and she said, I love the man that you are becoming. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't change that for anything. Mm. I wouldn't change that for anything. And I have not truly lost anything. Yes, yes. I have chosen to die, but God has given me his life and along with that, all the other things, yes. way better than I could have yes. imagined. What I would, I, I think what I'd reflect back, I hear you saying is you haven't wasted your pain. Mm. Everyone suffers. Yes. No one gets through this world without suffering. Mm -hmm. But you've chosen not to waste your pain. And I remember the pain that I had that led me to turn to over 75 sages and feast on their counsel and curate and distill. And most of those men spoke out of regret and loss mm -hmm. and the longing 
to rewind the clock and have another chance. And the themes were so universal and so much of it was uh, men that, I mean, what they would give to have a couple decades back. And yet all of them now were on the journey of maturing. And, and I think it's important, our friends that are with us in this gathering, you know, in, in becoming a king, I really unpack the, the distilling of their counsel in kind of a framework of how do we then live this? Like, what are the yes. big ideas? Yes. Becoming a son, becoming a warrior, becoming a generalist. Then what does it look like as the plane gets down to 15,000 feet to ground level and exploring yes. the habits, the practices that yes. shape a life? the habitat in which our soul can thrive because this world is not the habitat in which we were made to thrive. But by God's grace, we can do things in our power to shape a habitat that allows us to mature into what you're saying. Yes. And how do we develop a relational model? So there's, there's deep waters that we're not able to get into all of it today. But I think what I would say in that is you're a man who hasn't wasted his pain. And one of the counsels, pieces of counsel in this from those men years back. Um, a man said, you will reap in the next decade what you sow in this decade. Mm -hmm. At the time, like measuring in decades, decades seem like yes, forever, eternity. right? When you're a young man, it seems like an eternity in this instant world. And that's where the mantra came of live in the day yes. and measure in the decades. But the opposite is where we find ourselves. We live in the decade, just being overwhelmed with lack of finances, you know, um, being misdirected in our career, sideways in our marriage, right? We live in the decade and we measure in the day like the stock market. And it's just, it causes us to be bipolar, up and down, up, down, like the stock market daily is simply unhelpful. It's not made for that. But if you look at any given decade, for the most part, over the life of the market, it's pretty consistent and there is growth. Like, how much more in the kingdom life, right? The scriptures give us this parable of the sower and the seeds where it says, actually, the shortcut is the long, slow, and steady because the long, slow, and steady becoming good soil, the fruit over time is 30, 60, 100 fold. Yes. I mean, my uncle's a farmer and I asked him about that and he said 30X is a supernatural harvest. It's a super abundant crop. It's the best ROI you could ever ask for. And it's one that you consistently won't find in the financial market in the West. The kingdom economy is an extraordinary economy if we choose not to waste our pain. Mm. But we have to ask very seriously, how are we choosing to cultivate a habitat and practices, a relational model that sets our heart towards an orientation where in time and over time, we can become who we were meant to be, and it is available. Mm -hmm. It is. As you're mentioning, these are deep waters and we don't have the capacity to go into every single category and unpack it as we would want to today. But for our friends who are uh, here part of this, uh, as part of this gathering, when you describe that relational model, yes. what, 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 do you mention? What, what are you talking about? It's a really good question because we're using these terms and they're big ideas, but I think it's the best way I could kind of encapsulate what does this look like, right? Yes. On practical terms. Yes. And one wise man said, things that matter most must never be at the mercy of things that matter least. Hmm. 
The problem is the world has a current. It has an energy, it has a pull. It's like a riptide and it causes us when we're in the service of the false self to get things upside down, right? We end up spending our best and our most at our work, right? Yes. Chasing, particularly as men, our need for validation, trying to succeed, make a name yes. for ourselves, make a little money, get something going. And we give our best energy to the world and we have scraps left, right? And I looked at the lives of men that were older, that were wiser, that were young in their eyes, that had joy even after suffering greatly. And I noticed patterns, I saw these themes. And what I noticed first, Pablo, was their relationship with God was the centerpiece of the life of their soul. One man said it to me this way, that our inward life must grow greater than our outward life. It's right in the scriptures, though inwardly we are, outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly we are intended to be renewed, transformed, to grow. And so the real question is who and what is getting our time, our energy, our money? You can get really practical on these things. And we were intended to exist in a with God life. In a God-bathed world, Dallas Willard says, a God-breathed world, a God-initiated world, we were meant for union. It was meant to be the fuel of our life. And so the question is, how do we fundamentally have a model of relationship where our relationship with God is the centerpiece, that God gets our best, mm. He gets our most. And from that place, you know, we are entrusted, many of us, with this covenant of marriage and from that place, children. But whatever that looks like in our story, it is particular. This isn't a, um, a formula to fit every human being. It's a parable. It's, a, it's, a, a, it's, it's meant to be more of a mosaic and a yes. portrait, right? You have to make it personal. But the psalmist says he sets the lonely in family. That I believe so much fundamentally of the work of God in our lives is to reparent us, yes. to invite us to respond to God and be restored to a mother and a father. And so, so much of it's reparenting. And I believe that becoming a parent and being parent, parented to be set as a family is the centerpiece of the kingdom of God. And so whatever that looks like in your story, for many people it's marriage and out of that covenant it's children. And like you said, there were times where you were there, but you were not there, right. right? And so you were physically present, but you were emotionally absent. And that was one of the biggest griefs of many of the men in their responses of regret. They said, I was there. I attended all the stuff, but I wasn't there. One man grieved. He said, life in my 30s just felt like a roller coaster. It was ripping and racing. It was all I could do to hold on. He said, there was a day I turned to my wife and I said, I don't remember when Cam, like, through that winning pass of his varsity football game. Like I was there, but I don't remember it. Like, Steph, will you tell me? Like, what was that like? Wow. I don't rem remember like when Kelly got her license and drove away, like that day when she was 16 and she was in that convertible. Like, I don't remember it, will you tell me? He was there, super dad, pastor, mm. but he wasn't there. A few years later, his wife left him and his memory walked out the door. Oh my God. It was gone. And he spoke to me with such regret. And the thing is, you can't fake it and you can't force it. When our kids are little, my son's three and we're nose to nose, 
he has what he needs, a present dad that's affectionate to him, but the problem is he grows up and he begins to sense things and he knows when I'm struggling. Yes. My, my kids have confessed that they have had to feel like they're responsible for controlling the emotional mood in our household. Totally. If daddy is pissed off because he's had a hard day at work, they try to act happy yes. because they feel like it's their job to bring up the mood. But a healthy parent, a healthy adult, does not make their children responsible for their happiness. Mm -hmm. So how do I become the kind of person where my wife and my children are getting my best, mm -hmm. my most, and they are not victims to my work, right? And from that place I learned like I have to have peers. Dan, Dan Allender, I, and I talk much more deeply about this in the book, we don't have time to unpack it all here, but he defined a peer as a like-hearted king. He said, sign treaties with a few. He said, find like-hearted kings, sign treaties, and when they are at war, you are at war. It's not when you are at war, they're at war. It's how do you become the kind of person mm. that another like-hearted man would want to be friends with? Wow. My side of the street, my responsibility, become that kind of friend and do life, sign treaties, and it will only always be a few. Mm. These men had mentors, and these are older men and women. They all had mentors. They had places they were asking their questions. They were lifelong students, lifelong learners and lovers is kind of the banner over our home. And it was only out of that fundamental basis that then we can look at what is our vocation, like what is our mission. And these are not pure divided categories, but in essence, I, I look at this model as almost like a triangle with the base being God, and then family, like-hearted kings, mentors. And the implications are, if this is our energy, our time, our money, there is not much left, particularly for a young man who is finding his way in the world and is doing this work, and that's okay. You have permission by God to be young. See, orphans always feel behind, but sons were always on time. And so what I learned was I needed a model, a physical model to ask myself, how am I spending myself? Where am I investing? What needs realigned? And who do I need to ask their counsel? Who, need, who has eyes on my life that I need to um, seek their counsel so that I can be honest and not fool myself? I was on vacation this last week camping at Glacier. And I said to kid, my kids, dad needs your feedback. What's your counsel in my work? You know, I just went through the launch of Becoming a King and it was the most intense two months of my vocational life in 22 years. And so it was particularly intense and it was during the COVID season. So it was added stress and, and it was a good time to just get honest feedback. They saw me at, at some really brutal moments and, and, uh, they had some really good counsel. And mm -hmm. my son said, Dad, you still, come, you still come through for too many people. Wow. Hmm. It's really hard and really good to hear that from your son. Wow. And I said, Joshua, thank you. No defense, right? That just doesn't work. Because I could feel things like, no, you don't know. You don't know what it's like. Mm -hmm. 
to launch a book. Like you, you have no idea what it's like to do all that and show up for your lacrosse games and your foot. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. You're right. Mm. And Abigail said, Dad, you know, you've worked on this victimism thing and you've grown up a lot in that over the last year. She's pretty perceptive for 13. <laughs> but she said, Dad, you have a lens mm. and you're missing some joy. Mm. She said, Dad, if I observe your life, like, it's there's some slogging to do yes. it's not over like god's called you to some things that are going to cost you it's yes. my 13 year old and she said but there's a lot of joy you're missing i think in some of these things because of the way you choose to see it like dad just i want to invite you to look at how you see things and don't miss the joy wow to have that from your kids and so it's not a bulletproof model, but over the last 15 years, I've really asked myself, where am I spending myself? Yes. Who gets what parts of me? I'm with you today because you strengthen me, Pablo. Like you fuel me. You are a like-hearted man. You're the kind of man that I want to become. When I'm with you, I'm a better husband. I'm a more loving dad. I love God more. I trust him more. I'm more honest with my brokenness. And I'm more willing to celebrate what God has accomplished. Yes. I have more joy. So I choose to spend more life with you. Mm. Like, it's really important to look, to do an honest inventory of where we are in our current relational model. Where do we want to go? And what is God saying about how we'll get there as next steps? It is a very practical tool, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the complicated or the complex part um, is when I look at my life through the lens of the relational model and that pyramid-like figure, what I can, I cannot help it, but I have, I have to make choices now. Yes. I have to learn to say no. Mm-hmm. And I have to say no to things that I've been saying yes by default my entire life, which exposes things that I don't want to say no to. Right. And so it, I see how um, practically it connects us with the rest of the story we have been sharing today. Yes. By having a practical tool like this right. that allows me to see where, are the, where my finances are going, where my emotional energy is going, where my time is going. Um, and why is right. it going there? Right. And I hear the whiffs of, of I hear the whiffs of death. Right. Yes. I hear you. Yes. I hear you indirectly saying there are things that have to die because yes. saying no yes. to certain people and things, it's a death. Yes. And it's a death that perhaps you weren't willing to face Correct. before. But now the stakes are such where you go, My children are at risk. Yes. My marriage is at risk. What will my children describe their dad? When my children are 40, how will they describe their experience of their dad? What will they say it was like in their home? Hmm. Right? And you don't get this back. You don't get these years back. The good news is the best is yet to come as we are apprentices in the kingdom, in marriage, in parenting, the best is yet to come. Uh, a friend was uh, spending some time with us for dinner this week, and he said that they have this mantra in their house, the scripture, 
from the wedding feast at Cana and where the, Jesus turns the water into wine at the end of the party of seven days of feasting. And this phrase, he saves the best for last. And I feel like the spirits have put that on your fridge. Mm. Just as this proclamation, the best is coming as a parent, yes. as, a, as a husband, mm. um, in my work, the best is yet to come. Mm. He saves the best for last. Mm. But we don't get these years back. My son turned 16 and left with his car. Yes. I don't get, I don't get the drive time back. It's gone. What I did with it and what I didn't do with the hundreds of times of shuttling our kids to school and to lacrosse and to football, it's gone. I don't get it back. And I can either grieve, you know, regret. Mm. I need to grieve what I miss. I can either regret or I can turn that energy into the now. And what I have for me now is what I lost, what, I, what I've put to death is the intimacy of all that car time. Mm. But one mentor in this process told me about six years ago, he said, here's my counsel to you is buy a hot tub. Rich people have hot tubs. I don't have a hot tub. <laughs> I didn't have a hot tub till yesterday. And he said, buy a hot tub. Because you know what a hot tub did for me and my son and my daughter? Mm. It gave me 15 minutes of connection with them every night when they were teenagers. Wow. He said, we had our nightly soak. And Sherry and I made a decision five years ago. When our oldest turns 16, come hell or high water, we're buying a hot tub. So fast forward, we thought, oh, five years from now, we'll be rich, we'll have a bunch of money, we'll have <laughs> savings, you know. Well, five years comes quickly, but yeah. we have been thinking about shopping, praying, and my son and I went, and we negotiated a hot tub, just played hardball, couldn't get a deal, walked away, came back later, part of his initiation, part of my initiation. Yeah. And in God's wild timing, the day that my son turned 16, got his license, yes. drove away, was the same day the hot tub was delivered and wow. my son built the pad for it. Yes. And this week we're gonna fill it up and start That's our good. soak. It's what God is giving. And yes. so I share that to say every season has a blessing, but yes. we don't get back. Yes. I don't get back the wife of my youth. I don't right. get back my children as small um, in that stage. And so I want no regrets. And what I can do that's in my power is choose life today. Yes. And that is available in abundance. Which is the hopeful part of, the, of the, 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 the opposite side of the same coin. In the same way that saying no feels like death. Yes. Can I trust that by saying no to this and actually put that part of the false self to yes. die, there is the capacity now to say yes to something that will strengthen my true self and therefore can I, that will allow me to encounter life in ways that I'm not experiencing today. Right, but it comes out of the no, Correct. right? Like Jonathan David Helser, like one of our friends and mentors, he said, it's in opening our hands yes. for that thing to be released Correct. so that open-handedly we can receive right. the next treasure coming that's even in greater measure. Right but it takes the opening of our hands, even in prayer sometimes. Okay, God, I don't wanna let this go. I don't wanna put this to death. Everything is beautiful in its season, Ecclesiastes It's a beautiful picture of the baptism, is putting something to death so that as after it's been put to death, right. then it can come back to life. And so that's a question for our friends of who and what in me yes. needs to be put to death. Yes, It's a very important question. Yes, beautiful. Morgan, thank you. Yeah. This feels 
This feels full. Yeah. This feels amazing. A um, couple of questions for you, practical questions for our friends who are uh, joining us in this conversation and their hearts leaping, whether with expectation, nervousness, curiosity, where do they go now? If they want to learn more about becoming a king, if they want to explore more about the book, uh, where would you point people to? Yeah, I, I, my intention in writing the book, you know, it was a book that I wanted to write over a decade ago. Um, yes. I, I believe that I am a messenger and be entrusted to recover um, the ancient path and the gospel to curate and distill it. Uh, but God was really clear um, back in the day. He said, first, I want you to become the kind of person that I can entrust with this message. Yes. And then I want you to invest the time that this deserves to craft the message in a way that can truly connect with the hearts of women and men out in the world. And only then turn to find a partner that can help you bring it to the world. And so I went through those stages and it was a six year process. And so now it exists. And in the time I formed the book, Becoming a King, and I created a video series. It's a six session video series that we've walked with men through. And the idea is it's an introduction. It's a way to just begin to taste this, to dive deeper into the conversation here in video format. It's something great you can do individually. You can walk through with a group. And then there's a companion study guide. And it's written on two levels. The first is just an entry level. Big ideas, some of which we're talking about today, a few of them. Big questions, a bit of reflection, some guided prayer, a little bit of the practices we're talking about. That's kind of level one for anyone to taste and see. And then level two, it's really deep apprenticeship. This is an invitation into a path and a process. And partly, give the spoiler alert, all of this is an invitation where I am inviting people into a decade hmm. to make this one of the central motives yes. of our life yes. is to take very seriously and joyfully our apprenticeship in kingdom living because it's worth it. You yes. know it by its fruit. Yes. And so the study guide is written to take people deep. And so I would encourage people to start there. I'm becoming a king in the book, video series, the study guide. Um, and where this was birthed as I sat with these older men over time, part of it was taking the lowest seat at the table of excavating, overbuilding, of forsaking shortcuts. And so there's a lot of those themes and big ideas. And part of it was giving myself permission to be young, to be a student, to not be out front and to serve older men. But God made it impossible at one point in the process not to offer. And so we gathered the council and started offering small retreats with like-hearted men sitting with mentors and exploring these ideas and wrestling with our stories and taking the next step of initiation. And that, are, um, that, that took the form of the Become Good Soil Intensives where you were in 2014. We're now over a decade into those. And Become Good Soil is a website, it's, it's a piece of our large, it's a, it's kind of a portion of our larger mission of Wild at Heart to restore the lives of men and women. And so there are blogs, there are podcasts, um, all different free resources at becomegoodsoil.com that's just 
um, this message lived out in many forms. So there's on-ramps as part of regular practices. I would invite men and women to walk through those podcasts over time. Those blogs over time, there's a lot that are interview form, some teaching, but all of it engaging much deeper on these ideas. Um, but all of it, this is just an invitation. Yeah. This is a doorway. We are just scratching the surface. Yep. I think what I would share, as you know, and I know, is there is more. Yes. It's available. And it's available to all, but few choose it. It's always been so. It's always a few that choose to go after the deepest treasures and recover true wholeheartedness and everything that God intended um, when he met men and women. And this is one path that I believe God has anointed to recover that reality in our generation. And so I'd love for them to check out becomingaking.com. Becomingaking.com and becomegoodsoil.com. Yes. The two resources, yes. practically. And with that, Pablo, I'd also say, I hope they track with Wild Sons. There are people that will watch this or listen to it that actually haven't met you yet yep. because this will get out, right? God has its way. He's, he's a generous sower. We live um, with some cottonwoods around us and every May, the cottonwoods go to seed. Mm -hmm. And for many years, I prepared on my little postage stamp back concrete slab and suburgatory for the intensive. And these cottonwoods in the creek below us would go to seed. And it was just a concrete ditch, but the abundance of seed, millions and millions and millions, and see how few actually land on good soil, mm. but some do. Mm. God is a generous sower, and our invitation is to become good soil, yes. where those seeds can take root. Yeah. And you are one of those men, and this message will get out. And so my hope and prayer is that many men and their wives will find wild sons and dive into all that you guys are offering because you are a like-hearted peer. And that's my mission, is to invest in men like you and see you embody the gospel of life and take it as, it, as it's entrusted to you and expressed in your world. So I commend anyone listening to this. Thank you for that, Morgan. And it's been, um, Wild Sons has been the expression of the transformation that God has done in my heart and the heart of my family, um, of going from being on the verge of a divorce and my life pretty much destroyed in every single category to being rescued by God by recovering the gospel in my own heart through the Wild at Heart message and the Becoming a King message, among others, primarily those two and taking me over a journey of 15 years, uh, almost 20 now, um, to the place where we are. And so our heart is that we can take the treasures that have been passed down to us, from you, from John, from um, our mentors, and pass them down to the next generation, the next group of men and women who are hungry and who are willing to risk it all to get the more, to get the life that only God offers. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for today.